Welcome to the Best Ever You Network, celebrating our third year on Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. Thank you for helping us become a number one rated live show with over one million global listeners. Our team is on a mission to help you discover your authentic best self and bring it to the world. And now, here's our show. Hello, hello, hello. Guess what, everybody? I can see it melting outside. Hi, I'm one of the hosts of the Best Ever You Show. My name is Elizabeth Hamilton Garino, and I'm so happy that you you are here with us. And uh, I'm in Maine, but over on the West Coast, we've got Dr. Walter Jacobson. How are you? Hey, Elizabeth. Great, great. How's it going? Good. It's melting. Good. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. Great. Yeah. Six feet of snow. I wonder how long it's going to take for it to actually all melt. I mean... It's crazy. I'm going to take a picture later and post it in social media because, and it's funny, people people will email me and they'll say, whenever I see snow, I I, I know it's you posting how much you have, but there there's still piles like maybe that are 12 feet high, <laughs> and wow. the parking lots they're even higher. They're probably 20 feet high. So I'm wow. predicting like June, July before the fight. I'm going to track it. <laughs> we'll do it over the show anyway. Um, that has absolutely, well, not, not too much to do with our guest today, I don't think, unless you're talking about health and getting out and about and trying to do your exercises in the snow. But um, we've got Dr. Pam Popper with us. She's a naturopath and an internationally recognized expert on nutrition, medicine, and health. And she is the executive director of the Wellness Forum Health, of Wellness Forum Health. And Dr. Walter, now you you know her. I don't. Do you want to talk a little bit about her before we bring her on? Well, yeah. Well, basically, we met uh, (laughs) in Sacramento. There was a Sacramento Food Bank project by a a group called EarthSave, and basically, they were they were uh, taking people who were overweight and had serious illnesses, heart disease, blood pressure problems, cholesterol problems, and they were on a ton of medications. And uh, Pam came in to talk about a plant-based diet and good nutrition, and I came in to talk about how to overcome resistance, uh, your own resistance and uh, your inner critic. And it was miraculous. These people, uh, they, they changed their eating habits and they changed their lives. They got off medications. And that's really a great place to start, I think, with Pam to have her maybe tell us about the plant-based diet and, and how that whole thing worked and what she does, that kind of thing. Yeah, and, and she also teaches um, a course that I've been actually looking at taking. It's one at eCornell on plant-based nutrition. I've been thinking about getting that certification. So I saw her name on that, and I'm like, how cool is that? I've been looking at that for like a year and a half to take it. And um, that my son also wants to take it, and I figure he's probably more important to go first, and then um, and then I'll I'll lay up and take the class as well because it's actually his major and focus in college is fitness and nutrition and all that. So I thought that was just such a cool coincidence that you brought the teacher my way. So thank you for that. All right. <laughs> that was pretty neat. So anyway, well, without much more chat here, let's let's bring Pam on. Um, can I call you Dr. Pam, or how would you? Well, you can call Hi. me. You can call me Pam. Doctor's my title. Pam's my name. So let's go with Pam. <laughs> how are you? I'm great. I'm great. This is always fun to do. Yeah, well, thank you so much. And I know our community is really excited about this show today, and you being here. Um, especially our, we have a kind of a subgroup going on right now. We're holding a, a, a wellness challenge or a fitness challenge. Um, the name kind of changes around back and forth depending on what people are doing, but it's the Best Ever You Health Challenge. 
and we have 12 people separated out right now from the larger group, which is about you know maybe 5,000 people. And these 12 wow. folks have yeah these 12 folks have committed over the next four months to change their lives um, and transform their wellness. And we have people in the group who have already lost 15 pounds. We have we have people who've never exercised exercising. We have, I have all sorts of stuff going on. I think this call today will be will serve as a really great um, tool for everybody. Well, for terrific. Sure. Hopefully, I can provide some good information and some inspiration too. Yeah, I think so. Uh, definitely. Dr. Walter, do you want to start? Or Well, yeah, Pam, just tell us, you know, let's get into the whole thing about the plant-based diet and, you know, maybe I don't know if you want to talk about the China Project or how you, how you want to approach, but just really let people find out about how they can really change their lives, get off medicines and heal themselves with, with plant-based nutrition. Is that okay? Yeah, and I guess we can just back, let's, let's take a step back for a second and talk about this in the context of healthcare, and then everything makes a whole lot more sense. So, the, the, we have problems with healthcare. That's not a shocking statement. 100% agreement when you start with that statement, right? It's a mess. It's expensive. People get worse instead of better, and the drugs and the side effects. And we could go on and on about all of that. Um, but the the biggest problem with healthcare is we're not treating the cause of disease. And so by not paying attention to the cause, first of all. People don't know how to keep themselves from getting sick. I, I think it's really unfortunate that people think that it's genes and bad luck and and it's like you're walking down the street one day and it's just a bad day for you, so zap, you have lupus. Well, that's not really how it happens, and if people understood how it happened, I think they'd get more motivated to keep these things from happening. So anyway, if you look at the cause of most degenerative diseases, and I'm not talking about you know, trauma and injury, let's talk about type 2 diabetes and cancer and heart disease and autoimmune diseases and the, the stuff that we spend all the money and time on in our country most of it is what I call food-borne illnesses. And so people eat their way into these conditions, and then they visit doctors, and they get prescriptions, and they have procedures, and none of those things actually address the issue, which is the food. Instead, they address the symptoms. And so the analogy I always use when I'm explaining this to people is, let's say that I get in the car to go someplace this afternoon, and my oil light comes on. Well, I have a couple of options here. I can pull over to the side of the road, pop the hood, and disconnect the fuse that lights up the oil lamp and just keep driving. Well, we know the inevitable end of that story, right? The tension's going to blow up. Or I can take it to the dealer and say, look, this light came on. Obviously, something's wrong. And, and then you fix it, and the light goes off. Well, so what, what I've proposed to people is instead of the medicines and the procedures and the treating of the symptoms, which just postpones things getting worse, um, or even sometimes speeds the getting worse along, how about we treat the cause and we change the diet? And as you and I have seen in projects we've collaborated on and, and in our own practices, what happens when people change the food is they change, the, they change their health, and the type 2 diabetes starts to go away, and the, many times it's an effective way to treat some forms of cancer and coronary artery disease and uh, autoimmune diseases. So we get to the cause, and we, the person not only starts feeling better but actually gets better. You know, one of the allures of drugs is people can feel better instantaneously, but sometimes they feel better while they get worse. You change the diet, and they feel better, and they actually get better too. And so... Um, 
I love this David Barker quote. I've taken some CME courses from him, and he's a medical doctor in England, and he says, you know, patients really like all this stuff we do to them, this high-tech drug surgery, but but what they really want is not to be patients, and in that we fail them. And so, <laughs> so at the end of the day, I tell the people that come in here is, look, I'm a nice lady to hang out with, but what you want to do is get well and fire me. <laughs> and then go on and live your life instead of coming in here all the time with all this chronic stuff. So that's basically what the diet is all about and its relationship to disease. And then if you want, we can talk about, like, how does the diet work and what are the parameters and all that sort of thing. But that's my story. No, and and if I think if everybody listens just to this point for this radio show, that's a huge point to be made because people are – I just couldn't agree with you more, but the the question I have is people who are in the habit of going to the doctor and it's just part of almost like their nature to go to the doctor and take prescription pills and all this stuff how do you ch- how do you change that mindset um, from that to to getting folks to recognize that it's food, and really, you can prevent this, and so forth. And why are we having to? Why are we having to teach this? What's wrong with our food? Kind of playing well, devil's advocate. I know the answer, but yeah. I <laughs> yeah. Well, let's yeah. let's deal with the first one, the the first issue first, and that's the how do you get people to do it? It's actually easier than people think it is, and here's the reason why: um, people who go to doctors and just do what they're told. They have whatever tests they're told to have, and most of them are useless and harmful. Take the drugs that they're prescribed, most of them are useless and harmful. And uh, agree to procedures, most of which are useless and harmful. The way that we refer to that here is that they've unfortunately, they drank the medical (laughs) Kool-Aid. They've been been lied to, and I hate to say that's a harsh word to use, but but they've been lied to and they have not been told the entire truth about their situation. And so what you have to do is tell them the truth. And and this is this is what's missing in healthcare. It's the informed decision making process. And that's what we do here. In other words, I tell people taking control of your health is not coming in here and doing what I say because it seems like I know what I'm doing. It it's coming in here and learning about this information and then doing what you think is the right thing to do. It's your body. It's a, you know, I don't have a horse in this race. I don't prescribe the drugs, don't do the procedures, and it's not my body. It's just my job to educate. So here's what that looks like. So you take a patient who's been going to his cardiologist, his expert cardiologist at a university medical center, and he's taking statin drugs because his cholesterol is high. And he is he drank the medical Kool-Aid. He thinks this has him covered. And then you show him the drug maker's website, and and it, it, you know you could it varies a little bit from drug to drug, but if you average it all out, um, statin drugs reduce your risk of having a coronary event by seven tenths of a percent. And then if you look at the 23 pages of side effects, and th- then you say to the person, so how do you feel about taking the statin drug now? Well, not so good. Okay, well let me show you something else that you might want to consider, and then we show that person the evidence for using diet to lower cholesterol and, you know, how Dr. Esselstyn at the Cleveland Clinic has been taking people who were terminal patients and keeping them alive for decades using the diet. They don't have any further events. They don't take more drugs. They don't have procedures. Then you take the person who's been told he should have angioplasty and you show them that 15,000 people a year die during the procedure. The arteries close up again, 50% of them, in less than six months. 
and the results are worse than statin drugs. Now, remember, I just said statin drugs reduce your risk of having an event by seven-tenths of one percent. Now, how is it that we actually invented an $81,000 procedure that's worse than that? But we did, and we do it a half a million times a year. So how do you feel about scheduling the angioplasty? Now let's go back over and review the diet information. So if this were going on in doctors' offices all over the country, and this is what we teach doctors to do, in addition to working with, with the public, we work with health professionals to teach them how to have these informed, evidence-based, collaborative decision discussions. And it's amazing how cooled off the patients become really quickly about the drugs and procedures and how excited they get about eating broccoli once you've had a little bit of time doing this. And so, of course, not all of them are going to do it, but a lot of them do. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't so, know which um, place I'd have a statin drug or broccoli. Let me think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so okay. So so what happened? So when people come to you and say, "Okay, I, I see what you're saying," and yeah, I don't want this crap. I don't want these procedures. I don't want these drugs. But uh, what makes you so sure that eating plants is going to like heal me? What would you say to them? Well, I show them evidence because it isn't about what I say or what I think. Sometimes people ask me what I think. I tell them, you know what, you shouldn't care what I think and nobody else should care either. It's what does the evidence say. That's the only thing that matters. And so let's look at Esselstyn's studies. You know, the most recent one had 198 patients followed for over 20 years, 90% compliance rate, less than 1% of the compliant patients had an event, 62% of the non-compliant ones had an event. Can I guarantee you that you're going to get rid of your coronary artery disease by changing your diet? No, but the results are a lot better over here than they are on the statin drug website or the angioplasty information. We get this stuff right from the National Institutes of Health. I mean, we're getting from the drug makers and device makers sites themselves. So there are no guarantees in life. I mean, I can do everything right and get hit by a bus tonight, but this is the most protection you can possibly get, and then you just put it out of your mind and live your life and, and know that you've done everything that you can. What's the? Is there like a basis for why... Uh, not eating animal protein and then eating plant protein or plants. How does it work? Do, do they know? Well, yeah, we do know. And, and and I think you bring up an important point that we, we have all kinds of studies out there. People are very confused by the all the different kinds of information that they get. Um, but but the, the bottom line is that in order for the evidence to be considered good, it has to have been replicated in a number of different places. You've got to filter through conflicts of interest. And we have here a, 21, um, a list of 21 criteria for filtering evidence, which we show to our folks before we even start talking to them about this. And, you know, we, so anyway, but, but let's just jump to the bottom line. After going through all the filtering process, what is the evidence? What does the good evidence tell us? Well, Let's look at the first data point or set of data points. We look at population studies. And so there are places on the planet like northern Africa, parts of Japan, China, uh, rural Asian areas. These people just don't have very high disease rates. And um, so what are they doing differently? Well, the specific foods they eat are different from place to place, but one thing they have in common is they eat a low-fat, high-carbohydrate, high-fiber plant-based, not vegan, but plant-based diet. Animal foods are a tiny, tiny part 
of their diet. Now, it's not because they got together in central China and said, hey, let's come up with a good diet for Chinese people and we'll tell the others. It's because they're poor, and poverty actually has its advantages. As you and I learned at the Sacramento Food Bank, you can eat well on not much money, um, but these people can't afford all the rich uh, processed foods and, and animal foods that we eat here in this country, and it actually offers them a great deal of protection. So that's one uh, set of evidence we can look at. Another thing is we have some great uh, evidence in terms of um, uh, studies on identical twins and families where we see that, that um, it's not genetics. It definitely is the diet because even identical twins, the concurrence for disease in identical twins, the highest you find is like 17% and it's the way they live their lives, and it's definitely diet-related. Um, so anyway, we look at all of these things, and, 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 and then we look at the evidence that, for example, Esselstyn's published and John McDougall and a few other people showing, and we've published now, showing that you take people who are sick with any number of these degenerative diseases and put them on a plant-based diet, and not only do they eat their way out of it predictably, but quickly, you know, James Anderson at the University of Kentucky showed that a type 2 diabetic can become a former diabetic in less than 21 days. It's pretty remarkable. The drugs don't work that fast, you know. Who, so, who is anyway, that uh, James that Anderson. James Anderson at the University of Kentucky, he was doing this 30 years ago, a little bit ahead of his time. And then Neil Barnard has since replicated his uh, research on diabetes, but he's gone further. He now has studies on um, uh, neuropathy, migraine, PMS, weight, menopause symptoms, um, and, and many other conditions. So, so there's a lot of research out there showing that this plant-centered, low-fat, high-fiber, carbohydrate-based diet is the way to eat. And the good news is, if you're saying to yourself listening to this, you know what, I've never eaten that diet, and apparently that's why I'm sick, you can eat this diet starting right now, the next meal that you have, and you can start most likely to eat your way right out of it. And what what kind of food might be included in something like that? Um, what, when you say like low-fat, high-fiber, plant-based diet, what are you talking about? So people really Well, first of all, what people, yeah. what people think I'm talking about is they think I live on pine cones and tree bark. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> Actually, your principal food groups are fruit, vegetables, whole grains, and legumes. And so, like, to you know, a typical eating day for me is I have this ginormous smoothie in the morning that has uh, food-grade green tea and flax seeds and bananas and brewer's yeast and, and uh, almond milk and frozen fruit. And it's, you know, it's the beginning of what I call the moving experience. It has, like, 14 grams of fiber and, and uh, 20 ounces, and I have a couple pieces of Ezekiel toast with fat-free hummus. And then mid-morning I usually get hungry again, have a bowl of cereal. And uh, lunchtime today was uh, Caribbean red beans and rice and a big salad and you know mid afternoon you have some leftover lunch and then for dinner a great big salad and sweet potatoes and steamed broccoli and um and you know you can have chili and and, and veggie lasagna I'm I'm not too much on the cooking right now with my schedule but but uh, I eat delicious beautiful food and here's the great part about it because you had mentioned in your introduction a little bit about people losing weight 
when you eat this way, you can eat a ginormous amount of food. And most people find that a whole lot more fun than portion control and trying to eat tiny little bird-like amounts of food and be hungry and wait till the next feeding episode. So most of us who are really lean and eat this diet eat far more than people who have a weight problem. So that's the eating style. And what people find that it's really cool about this is that instead of being restrictive, which they anticipate it's going to be, they, it actually opens their eyes to just all kinds of different foods that they never had before and combinations of foods. And um, the, the thing we hear commonly from people once they've gone through the process of learning how to do this is, you know, first of all, this wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be. And the second thing is the food is delicious. You're right. You do not live on tree bark and pine cones. Um, yeah. Walter, hey, I was, was I right in? Am I right in, in some research? I recall that, uh, or or not that that animal protein will will turn on cancer genes. Is that was that it, accurate? It's a it's a it's a pro, it's a, um, a a cancer promoter. You know, and and that's a really good point to to cover, um, and and the most potent cancer promoter in all of animal protein is um, is dairy, and so the the key uh, in in understanding this is that and people get confused about this all the time is that cells in our body mutate all the time, and what, whether or not that becomes a problem depends upon whether or not these cells are, I guess, for the lack of a better term, fertilized. So. You know, you breathe pollution in the air and, and oxidative stress, all kinds of things may cause a cell to mutate. And sometimes the body just um, it snips it out or there's a process called apoptosis where cells kill themselves when they know they're defective for lack of, uh, just to make it easy to understand. Um, but um, in any case, you have some of these mutated cells hanging around and if, if nothing acts on them, uh, they just don't cause much trouble. But if they get fertilized, uh, then they can start to multiply and grow into a tumor. And um, uh, Colin Campbell, uh, who's a retired professor from Cornell University, uh, originally started doing some research on this idea of animal protein as a cancer promoter. He wanted to prove the theory wrong. He had read something about this in a kind of obscure medical journal and thought it certainly must be wrong because the thought process of the day was protein is everything. Of course, the thought process today is the same, but uh, back then it was even more so. So what, what he was doing at Cornell, which was interesting, they were taking lab rats and um, administering aflatoxin, which is a known carcinogen to these animals, and then they'd feed them diets with 5% of calories from animal protein or 20%. At 5%, none of the animals develop cancer. At 20%, they all develop cancer. Uh, when they would take the rats who had started developing these precancerous lesions and put them back to a 5% animal protein diet, the lesions would start to go away. So they literally showed that you could switch cancer on and off in the laboratory and that the effect of the quote-unquote fertilizer, the animal protein, was actually much more important than exposure to the carcinogen. And so that should reassure people a lot um, right there because I don't know about you, but I can't control my exposure to certain carcinogens. I'm going to go outside today and breathe air. Some of it's going to be polluted because that's just the way life goes. But if I start to understand that um, that I really can um, – uh, I can control whether or not that turns into a major problem by uh, by uh, altering the way that I eat, uh, then I, I have some control back. Now, having said that, we all know that animal experiments um, sometimes don't translate into the same 
um, phenomenon for adult for uh, humans. And so, uh, and we have laws in this country. You can't give aflatoxin to humans and feed them varying diets. So that, that wasn't a good next step for Campbell. But um, you mentioned it earlier, the China Project, and that's where things get really interesting because um, in China, many many years ago, uh, the premier of China was dying of bladder cancer. He had a real big interest in the topic for obvious reasons, and he did something that is pretty remarkable. Without fax machines, cell phones, or computers, he recruited 675,000 researchers to survey 880 million people and determine the death rates from cancer in various parts of the country for 12 different types of cancer, and he found that uh, cancer was geographically distributed, more cancer in some areas than others. And, and all this, uh, I'm going to speed along here in the interest of time, but what, what happened was they uh, he and some researchers conducted a study to look at dietary patterns and their relationship to cancer. And the limitations were that it was an ecological study, but nonetheless he was able to show that even among family members there were differences in cancer incidents based on differences in the amount of animal protein that these uh, people consumed. And so we see some evidence in human populations. Then you look at the population studies comparing one group of people to another, and, and you see pretty clearly that animal protein is a, uh, is a cancer promoter. And by the way, one, one thing I'll add to this uh, that sometimes we don't talk about is that um, uh, it, back in the labs at Cornell, the researchers were looking at what's the tipping point, like if there's no cancer at 5%, and there's um, all all of them get cancer at 20%. Where does the problem start? And, and they determined it was someplace around 10 or 11%, which explains why there's such low cancer rate in countries like Japan, where they eat a tiny amount of animal food. They never reach that tipping point. Cool. Wow. Um, I've got a I've got a couple questions. Um, I was kind of trying to go back to what you eat in a day for a second. Um, but also kind of piggybacking on this a little bit because that was that was really good information um, about cancer and animal protein and so forth. But backing all of it up to what people drink, to me, whenever I get a group of people in one of my health challenges, I am astounded by the amount of soda and diet soda and energy drinks that people consume. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit... Um, about what what we should be drinking? It's yeah, water. Like food and drink <laughs> over medicine, also. <laughs> yeah, it's just water. Water is the first choice beverage, and then everything else is after that. Like if you like herbal tea, and it's so cold in the winter here in Columbus, I like herbal tea, but that's not instead of water. And um, and then everything else becomes a treat. And by the way, I want to say something about that too. Uh, sometimes people listen to me talk a little bit in venues like this, and they think, "Oh my gosh, I'm gonna, I'm never gonna have dessert again, and I can't ever have a cocktail again." And and there are some people who can't, but for most people, what we try to teach them to do is to differentiate between food and a treat. And so treats are what we have on a holiday, at your birthday party, uh, when you have special guests from out of town, sometimes, not always. And, and then the rest of the time we eat food. So you know, there's nothing the matter with having chocolate on Valentine's Day, but the reason why people end up in my office is they're having treats 
15 times a day. <laughs> so eventually yeah. that catches up. And so but people say, well, how do you know? And I'll say, well, okay, today is uh, Tuesday. Is it your birthday? No. National holiday? <laughs> no. Are we, have, are we having some kind of special <laughs> gathering with distinguished guests? No. Okay, well, you're going to be eating beans and rice and salad, all right? The next time those things are going on that I just mentioned, then you might have a glass of wine or a chocolate brownie for dessert or something. And, and so that helps people to put things in perspective. This isn't about deprivation, and it's not about making heroic promises to never do something again that we know you can't stick with. It's about putting things in perspective and understanding that on a daily basis we need to eat the food. So that was a long answer to your soft drink question. No, but, no, no. It's, but it goes to, you know, it goes to, you know, if you have a ginger ale on the 4th of July, I don't think the world's going to come to an end. It's when that stuff becomes part of the daily fare that we start to see health issues arise. Yeah. And then to to lay up on that a little bit here, um, we, I'm the I'm the co-founder of Food Allergy Zone. Um, I, after a second pregnancy, I have developed anaphylaxis. And um, I pretty much live my daily life, and I eat clean, and I eat vegan, and I do all the things that you're saying, and I am still allergic to peanuts, nuts, fish, and shellfish in a life-threatening way. I don't know why or what changed, but something did, and I am just absolutely allergic to it. Mm-hmm. And um, very, it's very hard, but it, it helped me co-found Food Allergy Zone because we have one in 13 kids right now with some sort of food allergy. And mm-hmm. I get, I cringe when I see photos of parents saying, oh, look at what I went through the grocery store and bought. Everything's nut-free. And I'm like, but it's all crap and sugar mm-hmm. and everything. And you're feeding mm-hmm. that to a kid with food allergies where they're mm-hmm. already inflamed. Um, what do you well, think actually, about food feeding allergies? That, <laughs> feeding, feeding that stuff to a kid who doesn't have allergies is an equally bad idea. And oh, yeah. uh, unfortunately, the the problem, parents don't know. Nobody's teaching this stuff. The ideas that people get about food from the media, from the government, in health education classes in school are generally wrong. And so um, that's the unfortunate part about it is that most people get the wrong information for a variety of reasons that probably would be the topic for a different show. But uh, the bottom line is that everybody should be eating a health-promoting diet. And the way that we explain this to people is what we want you to start doing is practice intentional, proactive health care instead of what I call reactive episodic. All right, so reactive episodic is we just eat, drink, and be merry, whatever that means to each of us. And then when something inevitably goes wrong, we go visit a doctor, we get drugs, we say it's under control, we go back to what we were doing until the next thing happens. Intentional proactive is where we say, listen, health is a pretty bad thing to squander. And so what we need to do is um, is really pay attention to eating the right things and taking optimal care of ourselves to prevent do all we can to prevent bad things from happening, and um, and, and this is going to be part of our culture and our DNA uh, to pay attention to this on a regular basis, and you, and you get much better results. I mean, I'm 58 years old. The last time I made a claim on my insurance was 1994. The medical companies make no money on me. I'm a loser all the way around. Okay, for for anybody who sells medical drugs and or for pharmaceutical drugs and devices and services and the whole nine yards, and and um, and and that's what you want to be. It goes back to that David Barker quote, you don't want to be a patient. You do not want to be sucked up into the medical mill and spend your life being treated for sickness. And so going back to what you said about parents feeding their kids this stuff, one of the most dangerous myths that perpetuates that type of behavior is that 
somehow these kids magically outgrow this. It's like they can eat all the Pop-Tarts and Lucky Charms they want until they're 18, and then this incredible transformation happens, and they wake up one day and say, huh, that's bad for me. I'm going to start eating broccoli. It doesn't work that way. And not only do these kids track into adulthood with their bad eating habits, they track in with all of the health issues that they start developing in childhood. Two-thirds of them are overweight or obese. Cardiologists are now saying we need to test kids at the age of eight for high cholesterol and hypertension. Uh, we see kids in this office regularly with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, um, uh, situations that uh, type 2 diabetes in the third grade. It, it, they don't outgrow this. They just keep doing it, and their life gets shortened, and it's just a bad idea all around. Hey, Pam, um, okay, so first I just wanted to mention to people out there who may be thinking that uh, that are you, they need animal, animal uh products to get protein. It's not true. You can get plenty of protein, all your protein you need from from uh, a plant-based diet. But what I wanted to ask, actually ask specifically of you was to talk about, okay, soy products and processed soy products. Uh, is that good, bad, or ugly? Yeah, I want to back up and say something about this protein issue. I don't know if you saw this, but recent study, like three weeks ago, came out that showed that pea protein actually helped athletes build more, build more muscle strength than whey protein. So not only can you get all the protein you need from plants, apparently, apparently the plant protein's better. All right, so I just had to put that in there. But um, in any case, um, the soy is a contra- – there's a lot of controversy about soy, not because the research dictates that there should be, but because we have a lot of people – who promotes some crazy ideas about diet. And, you know, the Internet's the best and the worst of humanity, right? (laughs) The the Internet's how people find out about us, and the Internet is how people find other crazy people promoting crazy ideas. And so um, I first want to say that there are two two uh, big myths about soy. One is the group that says that soy is some kind of magical food. My gosh, if you just eat soy, you won't get breast cancer, you'll have stronger bones, and all of these crazy promises that are made. There aren't any magical foods or nutrients. There are magical dietary patterns. And the way that I explain this to people is is the combination lock analogy. So feature a combination or a, a, a wall safe in your bedroom that has a combination lock on it. And there's $10,000 inside. It takes four numbers to open up the lock, and you dial up three. You do not get $7,500. you got to get that fourth number right, and then you get the whole 10. And so when it comes to diet, you have to pay attention to the totality of the diet. That is the most important thing. So you know, soy is not a magical food. The other group that are a little off the wall, in my opinion, are the people that are sending out these silly emails, the dark side of soy, and you know, soy causes all kinds of problems like fertility problems. I always ask people, have you been to China lately? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> fertility problems, are you kidding me? But um, but I, I went to their website, and here's what I did. When people are in the <laughs> office, I just say, that. listen, pull your chair up here and let's look at this on, on my computer screen. So you go to the website where some of this originates, and, and they have 23 pages of studies that show you how bad soy is for you. And, boy, that makes you think this stuff must be bad. Look at all those citations. Well, we look at the first one. I'm not kidding. You can go through this exercise yourself. And and it says that when um, researchers gave turkeys soy flour, they developed foot pad dermatitis. And so I always ask my patient, you know, is foot pad dermatitis an issue in your household or is this something we need to worry about? I, mean, I don't know. Well, we don't see a lot of it in here, but if I do need to pay attention to this, you need it to means, tell me it wasn't in your files. It means to talk to you about that. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. So you you might be the first person who's ever had this going on. So yeah. uh, we go through three or four of these, and and people say, yeah, I see what you mean. This is silly. All right. So we we get rid of all the people making crazy claims about soy, either good or bad. And so what's the deal with soy? Well, if you like it, eat it. And if you don't like it, don't. If you're gonna eat it, don't confuse soy with some of this really highly processed garbage food out there, you know, the soy candy bars. That's, I mean, they're packaged as health food, but they're just they're just candy bars, essentially. And the, um, you know, soy pepperoni and and uh, cheese and not cheese and all that sort of thing. Uh, these would these things would fall into the treat category. All right, so you know, or it's, the gross it, again, category. It's, I'm not sure. <laughs> Doesn't sound well. Good. Yeah, it's it's like, well, and again, you have to you have to insert some reason into this. You know, you, I show up at somebody's yeah. house for a Memorial Day picnic, and they've got one With of these highly cheese. processed soy burgers. <laughs> I'm not going to say I don't eat that processed. Stuff. I mean, you're never going to make friends that way, no. right? But but on a day to day basis, you want to be eating things like right. tofu and soy milk and edamame and tem- and that sort of thing. And there's there's no reason to for people to be concerned about that. That's perfectly fine, you know. So that's my the story story in a nutshell. One, one of my kids, one of my kids, uh, my four boys, four teenage boys. They're thirteen, fifteen, seventeen, and nineteen. And um, the fifteen-year-old uh, is soy milk. Mm-hmm. He's a soy milk kid. Yeah, but, and I mean, kids, and, yeah, and not a ton of it. Kids or will like, like that, it, but he just never would drink milk. Yeah, well, kids, kids will even the kids that like milk will learn to like soy milk, and they'll learn to like all of this. By the way, if you just don't let them have anything exactly. else. So, par- I tell yeah. parents, you can you can make this whole process of transition take a year, or you can have it done by Friday. Here's how we do it by Friday: you get the bad stuff out of the house, and you start serving oh. good stuff. Let them skip a couple of meals and figure out nothing else is coming, and self-preservation will set in, and they will eat the food. All right. So and it works every time. <laughs> Parents tell yeah. me, you really think so? I said, listen, an eight-year-old will not let himself starve to death and cut off the source of food every place else. So that's that's what I did with my own. What is forks over knives? There's a well, it's a documentary that I had the great privilege of working on. Uh, I was the person who fact-checked everything in the film and did some of the research. I co-authored the companion book, which is on the New York Times list. I'm real proud of that. And I was in the movie. And basically, the movie uh, was produced by Brian Wendell, a great guy who read China Study and asked himself, I think, what a lot of us have asked. Why doesn't everybody know about this? And he thought that film, a good film, would be perhaps a great way to talk about this with people to start the discussion. He turned out to be right. I mean, we were we had a major theatrical release in 2011. Um, it was the number one selling documentary or viewed documentary on Netflix for a good long time. And, and boy, I don't know what the numbers are, but I'll tell you, just about every day somebody calls here or emails who just saw the film and is all excited about getting started and, and uh, eating their way out of disease or preventing disease. So that's what Forks Over Knives is. Great project, lots of work, glad I got to be part of it, and um, it changed a lot of people's lives. And then you had a follow-up book, right, of Food Over Medicine? Is that yeah, kind of a- that was my... 
That was my second book I co-authored with Glenn Mercer, Food Over Medicine, The Conversation That Can Save Your Life. And we, in that book, we went a little further. Um, we not only looked at uh, diet as an important component of health, but we delved into Wellness Forum Health's philosophy that um, most medical care is dangerous. <laughs> and, in fact, I'm not the only one saying this anymore. You know, Emmanuel Ezekiel, or Ezekiel Emmanuel, had an, an op-ed in the New York Times a month ago saying he's a medical doctor who is one of the um, influencers for Obamacare. He says the the annual exam is useless. He said, why don't we stop going through this useless exercise and let doctors do something more productive? He goes, I don't have an annual exam, and I'm telling you not to have one, too. And um, uh, a guy by the name of John Mandrola, who's writing some great uh, articles that are posted on Medscape, then wrote an article in response saying he's exactly right. He said the best way to avoid medical error is avoid medical doctors. <laughs> and so uh, we delved into some of that, why you shouldn't get a mammogram, why you shouldn't get a PSA test, why a DEXA scan is useless, and why there's really no such thing as osteopenia, and you know how useless psychiatric drugs can be for most people, and on and on and on down the line. So it took the whole Forks Over Knives concept a little further and looked at healthcare in general. I've got a lot of questions. We're going to be here all day. <laughs> okay. Sorry. We're not going to let you off the phone. Um, what what do you say to somebody who's like 300 pounds? They've tried to lose weight a bunch of times. They try to eat healthy a bunch of times. They do try to do the smoothie a bunch of times. But you know, people are they, they, she's just not getting it. In fact, mm-hmm. gained an, gained another 50 pounds on top of it, and just mm-hmm. completely doesn't get it. When you're tr- tr- Teach us maybe, there's a bunch of coaches listening to, life coaches and people who try and help people with the mindset and all those things, including me. And um, this is one of my clients. And no matter what, nothing's working. And I can't quite figure out, like, do you have to lose in order to finally wake up? Or what's the wake-up call sometimes? Well, sometimes a chat, like, what my point is is, Sometimes telling somebody this or sending the radio show to somebody or saying, hey, you should listen to this, it's not enough. It's like you almost have to lose your life before they go, oh, wow, I need to change. Well, first of all, people have to want to change. And so let's let's divide this into two um, categories. You know, I talked a little bit about how you motivate the person who doesn't want to change to change by putting information in front of them. And we're really careful here to do this in ways that don't come off as lecturing. We invite people to dinners here where we just objectively present the information. It's not directed at an individual person. And then some people say, that makes sense. I think I... I think I need to not drink any more medical Kool-Aid and pay attention. Um, So let's put that aside and and let's talk about the person who is overweight, knows it, wants to lose weight, and has failed again and again. Um, The the issue goes beyond teaching them what to eat. They they know what to eat after they've been through our program, but that doesn't mean that they're going to do it. And I'll give you maybe five or six things that I think are important. I think the first one is that 
Um, the, 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 sometimes for, people need a strong reason for doing this, first of all. And if they don't have one, you have to help them find one because losing a couple hundred pounds is a long, hard road, right? The second thing is having said that you need a long-term goal, you've got to teach people how to have appreciation for short-term. Now, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here. Let's say that I'm 200 pounds overweight and I just ate a perfect lunch. You know what? At the end of lunch, I'm still 200 pounds overweight. So if I'm waiting to feel better until I've lost 200 pounds, my gosh, that's never going to happen. But if I can learn to start self-evaluating after each positive thing I do every day, and saying, doesn't this make me feel good about myself to be making good choices, that motivates. In other words, people think be, motivate, you motivate and then you get behavior, but actually in this world that I live in, sometimes we um, engage in behavior that provides the motivation, if that makes sense. Uh, the third thing is that um, uh, we, we stay away from making... I, I I don't like, at the risk of offending anybody, I don't like some of the 30-day, 20-day, three months. And, and, I, and I'll tell you why. I, it, um, it, I don't like for people to commit to do something for a short period of time with an escape clause at the end. And I had a very obese patient say to me one day, and, and this is exactly what she said. She said, okay, Dr. Pam, you can take one look at me and tell me what my problem is. I'm obese. So she said, let me just tell you a little bit about me. I've done every 21-day, 28-day, 30-day, 90-day, six-week, six-month program on the planet, and I can do anything for six months because I have a will of iron. She says, here's my thing. I'm 35 years old. I don't have a 30-day problem. i got a whole rest of my life problem going on, and if you can't help me fix that, then we're not going to be able to get much done here. I said, well, I appreciate you being direct. <laughs> but um, but, but there, there's some merit in that discussion that that um, when, when we get all psyched up to make some heroic change that's not possibly sustainable, I will never have dessert, and I'm not going to have alcohol ever, and I'm never going to eat chocolate, and I'm never going to never, never, never. You know, I, I'm a strong personality. I can extract that promise from anybody. And uh, but but the question is, is it really meaningful and sustainable? So we try to stay away from that here, and instead talk about changing your life. And then we operate under the philosophy that willpower has nothing to do with this, because the research is quite clear that it doesn't. Uh, there's a great book called Change Anything that's sort of one of the Bibles we use here um, that talks about the areas of influence that cause people to behave in certain ways, not just with eating, but with any other habit that you want to break. And uh, um, and so we, we use those principles to help people change their environment and their relationships with people, their relationships with food and that sort of thing. And, and this is a very long process, and it goes beyond just teaching them what to eat. And so we, when, we, when we advertise our program, we say, you know, if you're one of those people who knows what to do, and you can do it for a short time, but you've just never seen the end of this thing, then this is this is how we can help you by going through this. So it would take a lot longer to give you all the details, but those are the basic um the, the basic premise. And it's a the there is a lot of um uh you have to be very patient in working with this population. They're willing but you're undoing sometimes decades of problems. I mean, we have one of our people here who I can talk about, our chef, weighed 500 pounds when he got here. He weighs 240 pounds now. But he he was overweight. He's put on his first diet at the age of eight. So he comes in here at 48 years old. That 40 years 
of of bad thinking patterns and and eating patterns and all that stuff. You, you're just not going to unravel that with an intellectual discussion of the right way to eat. Yeah, um, I, I agree. Pam. And, and do, you, do you think somebody? Hang on one second. Do you think somebody? Um, um, what what point do you think people need to be be referred to a medical professional, but not to back to getting pills for it? And well, where do you go? We, so uh, do we never, start never, people? unless you never, unless you really despise that person. Okay, if you really <laughs> despise that person and you want to hurt them deeply, then you send them to a medical doctor to have procedures exactly. and pills for their condition because it will most certainly make them worse, um, and it postpones getting to the the crux of the issue. Now, here here's one of the things that that uh, can help these people stay motivated. First is the short term. Uh, uh, gratification, as I was mentioning earlier. Okay, I, I went to the gym. I did what I was supposed to do. I feel better. And, and this is something, too, when it comes to exercise. People cannot feel like going, and they can feel awful while they're doing it, but 100% of all people feel better after they move around. So you, you get into that short-term gratification thing. But, but the other thing is to help people understand that any issue that you're facing in your life is actually a microscopic view of your life. So if you're doing some, if you have some erroneous thinking as it pertains to food and your weight and your health, my guess, and I'm always right about this, and I, I, we, we talk about it, and my patients will laugh and smile, my guess is that um, you probably have some other areas of your life that uh, you have similar situations. And so if we can figure out this health and weight thing, not only are we going to get to a better place with your health and your weight and eating and all that stuff, but you're probably going to see some spillover into some other areas of your life that will make life easier. You're probably going to be more willing to confront a, a relationship issue than than you are right now, per, perhaps. Maybe that might be another manifestation. Uh, so uh, you drug somebody up and you're not you're not addressing it. You you uh, bariatric surgery doesn't address it. Half of them eat their way back into their obese state anyway, and it's a dreadful surgery. They will all have medical complications. So, like I said, if you really really hate that person and you want to get back at them, you send them that direction. Other than that, you work with them until you get them there. Okay. So my question about the doctors, you said. Don't go to doctors. I hear you. I'm a smart guy. I've read all this stuff. I believe in it. But uh, it scares me when you say don't get a PSA, or when you, or maybe there's a woman out there who gets scared when you, when they hear you say don't get a mammogram. My my fear is okay. I, I've been yeah. I've been brainwashed. But yeah, if I don't do that, how will I know if something's growing or not? Well, the first thing is let me explain why I say don't get a PSA. Richard Ablin, the guy who discovered PSA. We wrote a great book called The Great Prostate Hoax. He's speaking at our conference in the fall here. We've become a little friendly. And um, and, and he basically uh, has been lecturing on the fact that this test is useless for detecting cancer. The false positive rate is 78%. The Gleason score means nothing. We have a million men in this country who are impotent wearing diapers because they had a surgery for a cancer they didn't have. All right? Mammograms. Why do I say don't get mammograms? Because to save one woman's life, we have to screen 2,000 people for five or six years, and we're going to kill six of them, treating them for a disease they don't have. Now, again, there's lots to talk about. It goes beyond the amount of time we have here. 
but this isn't one of these things. And, and we show people the evidence. That's the other thing, too, is this is not a decision that anybody should be making lightly. Don't believe me. Let me show you the evidence. And that's what a collaborative, evidence-based, informed decision-making medical decision is all about. But... Um, so then you get to, well, what am I supposed to do? Well, I think the, the first thing is the medical profession has got to stop lying to people. We just need to look people in the eye and say, look, we don't have a test that tells you if you've got breast cancer early enough to save you. Because all this mammography, $8.3 billion worth in this country alone, death rate from breast cancer hasn't dropped by 1%. All right. No, it's growing. Uh, that's same that's thing what I keep saying. I'm like, it's it's getting yeah. bigger and bigger. Getting worse Cancer's instead not, of better. It's getting so worse and worse and worse, and everybody does all these, like, walks and parties and donations and all this stuff. And yeah, it's and you'll getting never worse, see me do it. better. You, yeah, no, I, I will. I, I've, I don't. I've said this before. I will take money, and I'll set fire to it in my driveway and roast vegan marshmallows before those people will ever see a dime from me. All right? But we just need to look people in the eye and say, look, we don't have a test that's going to tell you if you have prostate cancer or breast cancer early. The only thing we can offer you is evidence that shows that what you eat, the way you live your life, your weight, your body composition, and those sorts of things have a strong influence on your risks for getting breast cancer or prostate cancer. So that's, again, where when you help people to stop drinking medical Kool-Aid and look at the facts, they can become very, very motivated to eat well when they see that the alternative that they've been presented with absolutely has no chance of working for them. Would you, th- would you throw colonoscopy into that? For most people, yes. Um, I, I, I send people to get colonoscopies more often than people might imagine, mainly to rule out celiac disease because I see a lot of GI folks here. But um, uh, a routine colonoscopy misses 40% of the polyps on the right side of the colon. Sigmoidoscopy is just as effective if you're only going to get the, the lower part of the colon anyway. Uh, sigmoidoscopy is just as effective and, and um, uh, not as dangerous. I mean, the, the risk of a colon tear is 1 in 500. Uh, so it's a fairly serious procedure, um, and I think that there are times to do it. And, and, and let me say this. There's a big difference between these tests being used for diagnostic purposes versus screening. Those are, uh, so I'm not saying never mammogram. I'm not saying no PSA. PSA testing is actually a pretty good marker for prostate cancer recurrence. Like if you really, really had it and you got you, you do have prostate cancer, not PSA test and Gleason score, but, but other diagnostic tools, and, and you've had treatment, PSA is a good marker for recurrence. Mam- mammography is a good um, imaging device for people who have tumors, for women with tumors, palpable tumors. So I, I'm not opposed to the use of these things for on diagnostic purposes. The problem we have in medicine is there's no money in using this stuff appropriately. All right. If we actually did bypass surgery as as warranted, we'd do fifteen thousand procedures instead of five hundred thousand. Well, my gosh, half the hospitals in the country would have to close. It's their biggest revenue generator. Uh, same thing is true with drugs and supplements. You know, people with severe familial hypercholesterolemia, a statin drug's not a bad plan. But there's no money in that. The money isn't getting everybody to do it, and then that's where all the risk ends up being. Can you talk to? Fabulous information, by the way. But can you can you talk about some of the things um, like fibromyalgia? Fibromyalgia. I can't even say it. That one. Fibromyalgia. Mm-hmm. I think is how you say it. Neuropathy. Um, the itises. All that stuff. And 
just say it again so people hear you loud and clear about diet and those things? Um, Because more and more people are like, oh, I've got fibromyalgia. Well, I always ask people, do you want to get rid of it? They say, you can get rid of it? And I I tell them, well, no, unless you like having it, then we'll let you alone. But if you'd like to get rid of it, we probably can. Um, And and diet is the most important thing. I mean, I, I won't take people in this office who don't become members and learn our diet plan. Um, And then we have to do some other things to these people, too. I mean, often they're suffering from uh, side effects of drugs that have to be addressed. They need probiotics. The judicious use of supplements can be helpful. Um, but and and sometimes cognitive therapy. I, I I don't never refer people to psychiatrists or psychologists. I'm careful about who I send them to, but but the right type of therapy can be very helpful. Uh, so, but but again, if we don't fix the food, if you don't, we are what we eat. That that's not just a silly statement. You know, we are what we eat. If we don't fix the food, the rest of it isn't going to matter much. And, and uh, you know, stress is a factor. Lots of things are factors, but you're not going to deep breathe the fat out of your cells to reverse diabetes. You're just plain going to have to stop eating so much fat, you know. So uh, diet is the thing. It's deep the place breathe. the, the fat out of your cells. <laughs> you're just going to have to eat a low-fat diet, you know. So anyway, um, it's uh, it's. Um, uh, but it's exciting when you see the results that, that happen. And, and and this is something I'll say to any health professionals that are listening to this. You know, health professionals are stressed right now. They don't make a lot of money. That includes medical doctors. Uh, it's not fun. Somebody else is telling you what to do. I'll tell you what, just like we tell patients to drop out of the medical system and there's a better life for you, there's a better life for health providers. Jump out of the system. Come over here where I live where you help the people get better. You're not relying on insurance companies to pay you or tell you what to do. And uh, and it can really change your life. You know, it, it, the the most of the medical doctors in traditional settings I know, they wish they were architects or plumbers or something else. And then you look at people like uh, Caldwell Esselstyn and John McDougall and I, and we love what we're doing. And um, I asked us one time, he's 80, I think, when are you thinking of retiring? He goes, oh, no, I hope i got another 15 years in me. And I believe he'll make it. He, he and his wife were guests at my house last week and, and uh, they are just such energetic, enthusiastic people. And, uh, I mean, it's infectious, you know, and he has no intention of quitting. So uh, that's the way that healthcare should be for both sides. The patients should love it, and the doctors and the healthcare providers should love it. And in this model, we all do because people get well. Is there any, uh, is there any evidence that uh, a plant-based diet might uh, uh, affect the progression of Alzheimer's disease? Yes. Um, and, and that's an interesting question. You know, Alzheimer's disease and cognitive decline, the, the, there are many, many causes. Um, the effect of diet is actually quite clear because we know that in order to supply the brain with water and nutrients and oxygen, how, how's that going to happen? It happens through the vessels, the blood vessels and arteries in the body. Well, if your arteries are lined with plaque and narrowed because of injury to the endothelial cells, endothelial cells, how, how that's going to impair blood flow to the brain. And so a lot of cognitive decline is um, is just simply related to poor cardiovascular health. 
And then um, uh, if you look at Alzheimer's disease, um, that amyloid plaque, clear relationship between between the presence of that plaque and a high animal foods diet, um, I, I don't think this is a good idea, but there have been some studies uh, published showing that people on statin drugs do better, Alzheimer's patients on statin drugs. Now, I think it's better to feed them well than to put them on statin drugs, but still in all, uh, that's some evidence that this is actually a cardiovascular disease. Mm-hmm. Our family is um, smoke, smoking-free, alcohol-free, prescription, drug-free, drug-free. Um, we're working our way to be more, ve- you know, we, we're not totally vegan, but we don't eat a lot of meat. You know, we've cut back on a lot of that stuff diet-wise and stuff, and we're pretty much dairy-free, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and that these are choices we made as parents and things like that with the kids and, you know, all the stuff. And we did this, you know, I don't know, a long time ago, maybe 15 years ago now. And I always have a hard time in the mainstream trying to tell people even what acupuncture is. Mm-hmm. A lot of people just don't know what a naturopath is, what a doctor other than a doctor is, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and and so forth. You know, they they they're just used to going and getting a prescription drug. Um, whereas when I don't feel good, I'll go get acupuncture and get adjusted or, or do something different. Can mm-hmm. you better explain that? Well, I think, what again, all that we means? have to have, yeah, I think we have to have a discussion with people about how they want to approach health. When we, when we bring people into our place, like I mentioned, we have these dinners once a month. When we bring people into our facility, what we're what we're doing is um uh showing them the difference in this intentional proactive healthcare model versus the reactive episodic we're showing them the difference between um uh ep, you know eat, eating your way out of disease versus drug treatment training cause rather than symptoms uh we're showing them how to have evidence based collaborative discussions where they get informed and i tell people all the time that you can you can help get people on your side by by helping them to arrive at a place of agreement here's something everybody can agree on if we want the healthcare system to change, then the way that consumers interact with health professionals has to change. So we talk a lot about informed consent, but in the medical model it means doctors tell patients what to do and then they consent to do it. So let's turn that around. How about the patient gets lots of information, makes his or her decision about what he or she wants to do, and then informs the doctor of the game plan? All right, That's, a, that's informed consent, but it's a different right. way. And so if you start there... All roads lead to the things you and I are talking about. You start looking at the evidence, yeah, you're probably better off having acupuncture than taking Elevil for migraines. You're probably better off eating your way out of type 2 diabetes than taking medication. You're better off seeing a good therapist who won't use drugs instead of taking Prozac. So you get to those discussions later, but you start with a philosophical discussion that everybody agrees about. Yeah, you know, I just, I just be, we're getting close, and I wanted to mention, ask you to talk a little bit about uh, your, your website and what you do. I, I know you have uh, the wellnessforum. dot com is really a great place for people to go and join, and there's so much material there. And you have an ask, ask Dr. Pam thing where people ask questions and stuff. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, first of all, uh, our website is wellnessforum. dot com. Our company is Wellnessforum Health, and basically. But um, what we do is we help um, we help patients to get education and providers, by the way, patients and providers to get education 
um, on health-related issues so that they can engage in collaborative, evidence-based discussions. Now, that will include changing your diet, but it also includes a whole lot of other things like what we've covered during this call. Should I have a mammogram? Should I have a PSA test? And again, our, our goal is not to talk anybody into anything or out of anything. It's simply to show people what the options are and let them decide. And so um, uh, we have lots of educational programs. We, we offer a lot of stuff for free, by the way. You can get my newsletter every week for free, video clips my, by reporting the news on Tuesday and Thursday. That's free. We have a new consumer magazine called Informed, which is the Consumer Reports of Healthcare, and that's free for 2015. Our first issue just came out a couple of weeks ago, so if you want to subscribe, you can send me an email at pampopper at msn.com. And then we have lots of programs. Um, we own a school, by the way, uh, the Wellness Form Institute, and, um, and so people can actually get degrees and certification programs from us um, uh, if they want to be health providers or if you're a health provider already and you want to learn how to do this thing we've been talking about, we can teach you. Very cool. Very, very cool. This might be my most favorite show that we've ever done. And well, we've done thank you. Shows. I'm yeah, it's incredible. Thank well, you. Yeah, Pam, okay. you're, you're brilliant and engaging and inspiring. Yeah. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for yeah. having me. It was my pleasure, and I hope we get to do it again. Yeah, I do. I would really love for you to come back if you if you have some time. You you tell us huh? when you want to come back, and, and we'll see. Well, you invite you. me, and we'll set it up, okay? Okay, perfect. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank Bye. you, and thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Pam and, and Dr. Walter. Thank you for bringing her as a guest. She's wonderful and so informative. Wow. Thanks. Yeah. She's a wow. Whoops. <laughs> what did you say? I, I, I agree completely. It's, this is an awesome this, I agree it's one of the best shows. Awesome, packed full of information and healing, and I just really hope people take this stuff seriously because uh, these are life changers. Yes, it's a way to change your life. So it'll be great. I'll I'll be giving this to our our challenge. The one thing a challenge people don't know yet, Walter, is they're right. with me really for a year. <laughs> they can find out at the end of four months. Well, that's good. <laughs> that ties about, into what Pam, what Pam was saying about uh, you oh, know yeah. it has to be a life commitment, really. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So figure by the end of a year, but I, I still won't turn them loose. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> I love that part that she said, though. That was so. That was such a genius point. I wondered if she was going to say that because we know. I know you got to go, but just in the fitness challenge, we noticed the other day, like the energy went way up on day one, and like about day eight, everybody was like, "Oh, ugh," you know, kind of thing. And so by the end right. of four months, I I totally see what she's you know saying, and that is definitely what happens. So sticking with it and actually making these things part mm-hmm. of your life and not for just like a week at a time or two weeks at a time or a month at a time, but actually a, a complete life change yeah. to this to save yeah. your life and live longer and all that stuff. So cool. All right. Thank you so much. And um, we'll see you on Thursday. Okay. Bye-bye. Take care. Okay. Take care. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Best Ever You Show. Want more? Visit us at besteveryou.com. Be your best and keep it real. Confident, successful, caring, and beautiful every day with Best Ever You. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.